Father, we just love you this morning and we thank you, God, for this time of year, God, where we can come and we can celebrate the fact that you sent your son Jesus to this earth as our Savior to save us. And Lord, we're so thankful for that, that we can come, that we can celebrate Jesus coming down. And Father, I pray that during this holiday season, during the Christmas rush and all the things that we're doing, God, that we never forget God, why we celebrate. We never forget those things. And so we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that we're able to spend in worship and just spend in your presence. We pray that you'd speak to us through your word this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All three men uh, were approved this morning, so we're thankful for that. All right, Christmas. Christmas is upon us. Here we go. Embrace yourselves, buckle up. If you're not ready, you need to get ready, if getting ready is important to you. Uh, I'm a Grinch. I don't get ready for Christmas. I just kind of live through it and see what happens. Except for the Jesus thing. I'm all for the Jesus thing. Genesis chapter 3. The next uh, three Sundays, we are going to use Genesis chapter 3 to help us understand some of the reasons why Jesus came and why Jesus had to come and that God be in love he had to intervene he had to come and bring a solution and he has done so and we see in Genesis chapter 3 uh, some of the whys and some of the motivations and some of the things that we can rejoice over I believe so today the first one we'll look at now, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is about paradise. It was a great place. His creation was good. Matter of fact, when God observed his creation, he said, it is good. He created a masterpiece. And it doesn't take long when you go outside that you realize that God's creation is really spectacular. It's really, really something. And if you look closely at the trees, how they shut down in winter, then come back to life in the spring, and that goes on and on and on, I think it's amazing how fresh water just filters itself to the ground and goes down to the, uh, to the lakes underneath the, underneath the earth, and then uh, it's pumped back up for us to use again, and, and that same water will go through all the channels, and it We'll use it for all kinds of purposes, and then it, it's filtered again, and then it comes back. It's really, it's really an amazing world which God has created. And not only did he create an amazing world with, with uh, the oxygen and the air and the scenery and the, and the vegetation and the life and the animals and all those things which are spectacular, and I don't think that you you need to go much further than just consider all the animals that God's made and how unique they are and how they adapt and how they function to, to know that, boy, there's a designer to all that. And God's a wonderful designer. And then you have man. God made Adam. And then he recognized that it was not good for man to be alone. And he gave him woman. And at the end of chapter 2, in verse 25, it describes life for them, and it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, 
but they felt no shame. That's unfettered. That's free. That's nothing. That's, that's life with no barriers. What a beautiful thing it is to never have shame. Now, shame is a powerful, powerful uh, emotion, feeling, uh, condition of the soul, of the spirit. Shame. To feel horrible about a decision you've made, feel horrible about wrong behavior. To be eat up from the inside because you hurt someone. You wounded someone. The inability to be able to relate with other people, to, to, to have a relationship with them that's, that's free of shame is paradise. And it could very well be that a working definition for us about paradise is living life without any shame. Without any shame. And that's what Adam and Eve had. They had a beautiful place. They had a place with all kinds of fruit. They could eat of any of the fruit in the garden except for one forbidden fruit. Just one forbidden. Thousands of unforbidden fruit, but there was one forbidden fruit. Now, we don't have that understanding in our mind because we don't know what it's like to walk through a jungle or a forest and, and just be able to go out there and pick a banana, pick an orange. But, but there's a few places I've been in the world where you have that ability. What a neat thing is, you want an orange? Go across the street and pick one. You want a banana? Go get you a bundle, right? You, you want apples? Just grab those apples. Oh, that's, that's a neat experience, right? And, and so all around Adam and Eve, there was just wonderful fruit. And they could eat as much as they wanted. There was just one out there that they were forbidden to eat. Now we pick up the story of the fall of man in chapter 3. Now, either it's allegory or it's man's creation or Adam and Eve were real people and the serpent was real uh, uh, either snake or being or in the allegory, it's just Satan that, that makes himself be serpent-like. Now, personally, I think Adam and Eve are real people. No problem whatsoever with that. And, and, and I believe that Satan was either tempting this snake to do his bidding, or he was in this snake. Regardless, regardless of the situation, whether even if it's allegory or literal, the lesson is unquestionably important for us, and we need to pay attention to it. It tells us about the serpent. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Smart, cunning. He's a worthy adversary for us. We should never, ever underestimate the shrewdness of Satan. He can get it done. He's smart. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Questioning God. He's questioning God's word. 
He begins, and we see that first temptation of, of Satan to man. We see it unquestionably questioning God's Word. Did God really say, you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? There's no question, I think, that Satan's number one strategy of tempting people today is questioning God's Word. Think about all the questioning of God's Word that is going on in our lifetime. Questioning salvation. Questioning the deity of Jesus. Questioning uh, judgment. Isn't that a big thing today that is questioning our world? There is no judgment. God couldn't be God if there was judgment. And so God is questioned at judgment. Hell certainly is something that is questioned today. I mean, God, if God is love, there cannot be hell. That doesn't work out. And so Satan is shrewd, and Satan is a wonderful, uh, worthy adversary, and one of his primary strategies to cause man to doubt God, to question God, is to question God's words, to question His instructions. Did God really say you must not eat from the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Questioning God. Her response, of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. The serpent responded, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now we know that because this is a temptation of the serpent, it's not right. It's not legitimate. Now it's not that God is selfish. And, and that, I think, is one of the things that Satan is... Um, he's approaching Adam, uh, Eve and Adam with this. You know, God doesn't really want what's best for you because God knows that if you eat that forbidden fruit, then you're going to know good and evil and, and you're going to be like him. He didn't want that. He didn't want any, any competition. He doesn't want you to be godlike. He doesn't want you to have those understandings and, and to have that information to be enlightened to the point that, that you are like him. God really doesn't love you. That's really the heart of his temptation here. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care for you. He has said that you cannot eat of that tree because if you eat of that tree, your life is going to be better. That's the temptation of Satan. And the truth of the matter is, it's not the information that will be received from the fruit that is the fruit of, of knowledge, of knowing both good and evil, but God loves man. The reason why God did not want Adam and Eve eating of that one fruit in the middle of the garden, that forbidden fruit, was because then man would, be, would, would, would determine 
what is right and wrong. And we got a problem with that today. We've got a problem determining what is right and wrong today. We don't handle that well. And, and if, you'll, if you'll think about the politics of our day, if you'll think about all the ideological arguments that are going on today, you see these two things at the very heart of the hostility, of the enmity, of the, of the conflict there's going on in this world. Questioning God's Word, and God really doesn't love us. And so let's not pay any attention to God. Let's determine what's right and wrong. Let's write our own rules. Let's design life the way we believe it should be. And let's legislate it. Let's put it in action. And, and let's promote humanity. Because after all, we're in the driver's seat and we need to determine our own destinies. And we are not smart enough in our world today. We are not astute enough to be able to recognize that we are absolutely making a mess of our world. And when man has the right to determine what is right and wrong, he makes a mess of his world. Some of the examples, there are many examples that I can give today, but the transgender thing. Man determining what is right or wrong for someone. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine the shame, the heart, the woundedness of that. To look at yourself in a mirror and go, that's not me. What a lie that is. What a lie that is. Wounded. Wounded. This moral relativism that we have today in our world. Where I understand in California, there are laws that are, are being put in the books that if you tell anyone they're wrong about their lifestyle, you're breaking the law. Lord, help us. Everyone can determine their own way. Everyone has the right without any thought of rights or wrongs that are beyond us, we can determine what is right for us and our family and our people, regardless of the harm it causes on other people. That's what happens when we disobey God. We determine what's right and wrong. And, and, and that's what God is preventing here. That's what God is standing against. That's what God knows. And He says to Adam and Eve, don't do it. Don't eat of the tree that is going to give you the ability or the right in your own eyes to determine what is right and wrong. You are not created for that. I determine, God says, I determine what's right and wrong. And you're at your very best when you submit to that. But that's how Satan tempted Eve. That's how Satan tempted Adam. Questioning God's Word. Questioning that God loves Adam and Eve. That somehow or another, God is keeping something wonderful from Adam and Eve. 
And God was not keeping something wonderful from Adam and Eve. He had the very best for them. He had paradise for them. But the serpent shrewd. It says in verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Remember, 2.25 in Genesis says, the man and wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And now the act of disobedience changed everything for Adam and Eve and has changed everything for mankind. And now they look at each other, their nakedness, and they're ashamed. They know they've done something wrong. They know this is not right. And it's just too late. What a horrible thing that is. We lost paradise. We lost paradise with this action, with this sin that was committed by not doing what God says, by rejecting the temptation of, of the serpent and being obedient to what God has laid out for them. They felt shame. So they, they sold fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, that's paradise. Cool evening breezes. That's paradise to me. The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from God. They hid from Him. They hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And she says, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. And so you have man hiding from God as a result of the disobedience. You have man experiencing shame as a result of the disobedience. And you have man blaming woman and woman blaming serpent. Blame. Now, think about that for just a moment. Aren't those the three main keys of the heart of man that keeps him from owning up to the fact that he has sinned against God? Hiding from God. Feeling shame and blaming someone else. I'm not responsible for my, my life. I'm not responsible for, for the consequences of my situation. I didn't do anything wrong. 
I did what was best for me. I did what I understood to be right. I determined what was right and wrong. Blame other people. It was my mom and dad. It was my school teacher. It's the circumstances. It's because the job didn't go well or the best yet. It's my wife. My wife made me do it. I was doing okay until she tempted me with the fruit. It's her fault. And of course, Eve says, no, 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 no. It was the serpent's fault. And so whose fault it is, is, is shoved under the table, and they're not going to deal with whose fault it really is. It's their fault. Eve was deceived by the serpent, and the man didn't question what was going on. What fruit is this? He should have been atoned to that. He should have led the way. We're not going to participate with that, Eve. But he didn't do that. His heart was in the same place Eve's heart was. He wanted to know too. He was convinced too. I don't think there's any question about that. But when man sins, he has shame, he hides from God, and he blames other people. You know some people hiding from God right now. Their shame causes them to hide from God. They avoid spiritual conversations. They avoid you sharing the good news with them. They avoid you because you're a Jesus person. You see that all around. I guarantee you see that at work. You see it in your neighborhood. You see it at school. You see it wherever you go. They know you're a Jesus person, so they're going to avoid you because avoiding you in their way of thinking, avoiding God. They're hiding from God. And so man finds himself wounded. Wounded. And the truth of the matter is, because of this episode here in the life of Adam and Eve, we are all wounded because of sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. We are wounded in, because we lost paradise. So we're not at peace. We're not at peace with one another. We're not at peace within leadership. We're not at peace within families. We're not at peace within organizations. There's hostility. And the hostility is a result of everyone is wounded and we all need a healer. We all need a healer. And then verse 14 comes. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed. Satan is cursed. He's still active. He's still allowed to roam the earth. He's still doing his work. He's still working to tempt people to question God's Word, to question that God loves them. You hear it all the time. All these bad things in the world would not be happening if God loved us. Satan's behind that. He's brilliant. It's a good one. It's a real good one. It's a real good one in that blame game that goes on. Avoiding 
the responsibility that we all have for our actions and our behaviors and our decisions that keeps us from confessing our sin and saying to God, we have sinned against you, God, and we need forgiveness. Satan is brilliant with that. He's brilliant with that. I remember in a psychology class in college that, that one whole period of time in the course, maybe one whole week of teaching was no such thing as sin. No such thing as sin. And, and the professor, very smart, very brilliant, a great persuader, he gives all these statistics and all this information that says there's no such thing as sin. Man, when he goes down the wrong road, it's because of his environment. It's all behavioral. There's no such thing as sin inside. That's a myth. That's, that's archaic thinking. And he believed that the teaching of sin in churches like this church, people that believe the Bible are doing harm to people. And I, I had a conversation with him. I said, we're not doing harm to people. We're trying to liberate people from the reality of sin in their life. Because everyone's wounded. Everyone has sinned. But he said, that's the problem. You are laying guilt on people. And he said, all church is, is a guilt manufacturing organization. From my perspective, understanding these things is saying, you can be set free from the guilt. There is no guilt in Christ Jesus. Jesus came and he knew he came for the wounded and he completely forgives us if we'll only turn to him. But, but Satan is cursed. More than all the animals, domestic and wild, you will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Now look at verse 15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, whose offspring is this? So the serpent's not having offspring that is equal to the, the woman's offspring. So obviously, this is speaking to believers and unbelievers. Is there not hostility today between believers and unbelievers? Pray in school, can't pray in school. Hostility among unbelievers and believers. Between Satan's people, people of unbelief, and the Lord's people, people of belief. The abortion issue is hostility between believers and unbelievers. Many issues that government faces is a result of the hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The Ten Commandments is hostility. Unbelievers say Ten Commandments, archaic. We need to write our own commandments. We don't need to be subjected to Ten Commandments from this God that Moses worshipped. And yet, it happens hostility between believers and unbelievers. Jesus came because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and that disobedience led to man being plagued 
by sin. And the result of that sin is hostility between people. And the only hope is Jesus. And so he came. Now, this is really interesting. This is really cool to me. This excites me. This kind of boils in my blood a little bit. It says, He, capital He, a being, He will strike your head, speaking to Satan, He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, the he is Jesus. So, when sin entered the world and paradise was lost, in that situation, the very first action of God is the promise of the coming of Jesus. Because the only thing that meets man's sin problem is Jesus. And here you have it. This is the very first gospel promise. This is the good news. Now, isn't it true that the good news is not fully comprehended and understood and the gravity, to, gravity of it is not out there for us to bite into when we don't fully understand the bad news? You see, he, being Jesus, will strike your head, Satan. Now, that's a, that's a mortal blow to strike the head. You're going to strike his heel a minor blow. You've got the difference between a major blow and a minor blow. Now, Satan did hurt Jesus. Satan caused great harm to Jesus. We know that through the cross. We know that in the garden. We know that in the desert. Satan has attacked Jesus' people through the ages. In Revelation chapter 12, it clearly says that Satan, he attacks those who are people faithful to their testimony of Jesus. That's the heel. That's the heel. But Jesus, He breaks the head. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, He defeated the works of the serpent, of Satan. And so in this very first story of the paradise that's lost and the misfortune of people and the problem that people are in, you have the wonderful grace of God in giving us the glimpse of the good news. The bad news is we've sinned against God. The bad news is for the wage of sin is death. What we will earn from our sin is spiritual death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus came to take care of the wound that mankind has. We're all wounded. There's not one of us not wounded. We all need Jesus. 
We need Jesus for salvation. We need Jesus for forgiveness. We need Jesus for security. We need Jesus for contentment. We need Jesus for the abundant life every single day because we're wounded. We're wounded by the fall, the loss of paradise. And we identify with Adam and Eve. We can't blame anyone else for our own sin. We can't blame our husband. We can't blame our wife. We can't blame our parents. We're responsible. We have sinned against God. We're wounded. We're broken. We're in great need. And the Christmas story is about that great need being blessed by God, being helped by God, being Erased by God. He loves us. So serpent, you sorry dude. I'm not going to be fooled. I'm not going to be deceived and question God's Word. I'm going to believe what God's Word says about God, about Jesus, and about me. And I'm not going to question one bit that God doesn't love me. I recognize that all of His commands, all of His commands are best for me. I cannot do well if I have other gods before Him. I do not do well in life when I don't honor the Sabbath. I know that I cannot have peace when I don't honor my mother and father. I know that when I covet someone else's stuff, I'm not content in my own heart. I know that when I lust, it's not positive for my spirit. It's not good for my sleeping. It's not good for my port sitting. I know that that when I bear false witness, it is not good for my peace and serenity. It's not good for my for my ability to rest and to enjoy the time that I have. When I bear false witness, I can't see the beauty of a sunset. When I bear false witness, I can't celebrate the joys and the specialness and the wonder of a miracle. And so all that God has set before us is for our best. It's for our best. Jesus came because it's for our best. Help us today to understand the importance that He will strike your head and you will strike His heel. Thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus. In His name I pray, amen.